0: Hey, Jared Dubin here. This is the audio from Thursday's chat on the Halftime app with Adam Morris of DNVR and the DNVR podcast and their live shows and Locked On Nuggets podcast. Uh, As you can guess, we talked about the Denver Nuggets for quite a while, the ridiculous season that Nikola Jokic is having, the health and safety protocols and injury issues that the team is going through, what the team might look like over the next few years, what's going on with Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr., all sorts of things like that. This is the last chat for the year, obviously, because today is December 31st. So hope you enjoy. Hope you have a happy new year, and we will be back in 2022. Enjoy. So the Nuggets game tonight is canceled. I was going <laughs> to already talk to you about Nuggets Warriors tonight, but getting postponed because what? Well, it's uh, Zeke Naji, Bones Highland, Jeff Green, all in health and safety protocols. And then whew, just like Aaron Gordon, Monty Morris, Austin Rivers, Marcus Howard, Michael Porter, P.J. Dozier, Jamal Murray, <laughs> Black Chanchar are all injured. So the Nuggets do not have the available eight guys to play do you know who is and is not on the team at this point (laughs)
1: uh i think there's like six of them that are that were healthy or seven or something like that that are healthy um this is just the world we're in man if you you don't know this jared either but there's this this is the only time i've ever seen this in my life but currently happening right now there are two whole towns or suburbs in denver that are being evacuated for a fire so we're in the midst of like the biggest fire I've ever seen in the city uh, right now as well. So very apocalyptic feeling uh, in the Mile High City right now.
0: I feel like that might be just a little bit of a metaphor. It's
1: a little on the nose. It definitely yeah. feels on the nose. The <laughs> sky got- is red. Uh, everybody's evacuating. It's wild, man.
0: Red like those Nuggets jerseys that are basically <laughs> jazz jerseys or whatever they are. Like I still don't understand why they ever wear those. Like The regular Nuggets jerseys are some of my favorites, but... You know, they gotta sell stuff, I guess. They were
1: pretty. They were pretty horrendous, man. My theory is they were made by somebody that did not like live or know anything about Denver or the Nuggets. (laughs) That's like when you uh, you hire a third party to come in and make something,
0: and it's like, oh yeah, that's right. It's not the colors. It's not the scheme. It's it's nothing. It would not surprise me if that were the case. It's like those Bucks jerseys that are blue. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) like. It's just, what are we doing here? But anyway, the the Nuggets aren't playing tonight, but they are 17 and 16 right now, 20th in offense, which is crazy, Uh, 13th in defense, 17th in net rating. But basically the entire thing is they're an incredible team when Jokic is on the floor, like just as good as the Jazz or the Warriors, and like the worst team in the league, just as bad as the Pistons when he's off the floor. Or worse than the Pistons. I think report. worse. Yeah. Yeah. Plus nine point seven per one hundred possessions on the court, minus thirteen point nine off the court, twenty three point six net rating differential, which is just outrageous. What has been the the issue with those bench units this year?
1: Uh, well, so stepping back even further, the the issue every team is kind of going through this now, right? Like this this season is starting to feel more more and more um, just kind of ridiculous, you know, like like what, what conclusions can we really draw from just how the season is going? But I think for Denver, the season actually started that way. It, Denver was just ahead of most people who have kind of hit this adversity or COVID or injuries or combination. Denver started out the season this way. Michael Porter got – Injured, I'm told I have heard um from pretty reliable sources, his injury actually happened in the preseason. So they have not had a healthy Michael Porter at any point. I think he played like eight games. It was so clear something was wrong with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think going into a season without Jamal Murray, PJ Dozier goes down, Michael Porter goes down. You're just starting from a point of like this is not the roster they built, so you have to sort of manufacture a new identity and a new rotation and figure out who your guys are on the fly. And then, of course, in between all of that, you've got guys going in and out of COVID protocols and everything else. So, to me, I don't know that I can say there's like, oh, this is the. We could talk about some of the issues, but the real issue is they're playing a team and lineups they'd never envisioned having to play. And they just don't make a ton of sense.
0: Yeah. I mean, with Porter, you could absolutely tell from basically the first game of the season that something was not right. Like he shot 35% from the field and 21% from three when he was on the court. It's not like it was just in that last game where he had the, the issue on the fast break where he like pulled up and it was like, Oh no, he's done now. It was, I mean, you could clearly tell something was going on before that. Like when I wrote about him last year and the chemistry between him and Jokic, so much of it was just the way he could shake free away from the ball. for Jokic to to get it to him, whether it was a handoff or running the baseline or anything like that. And even that wasn't happening this year. So you could absolutely tell, but not having Murray, I think you're right is sort of where it started. Like from the very jump, they were playing guys in roles. They weren't meant to be in. And, things kind of got discombobulated. Like Monte Morris, I wrote, I remember a few years ago, about how he's the best backup point guard in the league because he's just like everything you want in a backup point guard. He's never going to turn the ball over. He shoots it pretty well. You can run the offense through him, but you don't need to run the offense through him. He can guard most guys that, you know, you put him against among backups. But all of a sudden you put him in the starting lineup and he's just like a little bit overextended. He's still solid, but... It's just not what you want him to be doing. And then that sort of cascades from there. Rather than being the third point guard and, like, the fifth guard, Campazo is playing a lot. And Austin (laughs) Rivers is doing a lot with the ball in his hands when he's on the court. And then P.J. Dozier goes out. And now all of a sudden, like, you bring in my guy, Davon Reed, and he's playing, like, 20 minutes a night. Is that your guy? I saw you tweeting this out. I was surprised. What's the story there? He went to Miami. Oh, okay. Okay. He was, like – he was on a – Miami in like the, the mid two thousands or sorry, mid 2010s when we were, we got up to like number five at one point, he was like, oh, I basically I called him like our version of Danny green from those North Carolina teams, man. All right. Give me the scouting report on it. Cause it's so
1: interesting. Whenever you see guys like you just assume like, Oh, role player, you know, defensive role player. Whenever a guy comes through the ranks like this, but he's kind of, He's less of a defender, I would say, than I thought, although he has great length, but he's kind of a good offensive player, I'm, I'm surprised. Like, what What is your scouting
0: report on Davon Reed? Yeah, I mean, for for Miami in college, he was definitely like R3 and D guy, is basically okay. what he was, and that's kind of, I think, the role you'd ideally have him in in the NBA. I think that in the games that he's played for the Nuggets, he has actually had to do a bunch on offense because a couple yeah. of those games, like Barton was out and that's why he was right. starting. So it's like have, having to do more offensively, I think has sort of probably knocked away at what he's able to contribute on defense, but he's got good size, good length. Like you can put him on most perimeter players, like you, big wings. He's not really going to be able to handle just because he's kind of short for to guard, you know, the six, eight, six, nine guys. He's like six, four, six, five. Something like that, but he's he's a guy who's not going to kill you on either side of the court, and right. it's just so, a solid yeah. role player.
1: Yeah, that's how I would describe him as solid. I'm I'm a little just surprised at his offense. Like he's had a little bit of like attack, closeout, one dribble, pull up, and it's been money so far. But since I've only seen him play like eight games, I, I yeah. don't. I, I'm a little gun shy to say I think he's like a positive offensive player, but I think he is defensively. You're right. He's. I'm so high. I've. This is. This has always been the case, but it's becoming more true for me. Guys that are short but have ridiculously long wingspans, I think, it's like one of the most – when you're talking about physical tools, if you have a really uh, abnormally long wingspan relative to your height, I feel like it makes you twice as valuable. And he's one of those guys that's <laughs> 6'5", but he's got a seven foot wingspan, And you can see it. When he's playing defense, he just keeps poking the ball from people because his, 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 I think he surprises everyone.
0: It made him really valuable uh, defending point guards when he yeah. was – at Miami, which I think is something they could use him for too, because, you know, especially right now, like, uh, Morris was hurt and Campazo was playing point guard last night. Like, Campazo can't really guard that many players right now, uh, just with the way he moves laterally and how small he is. So it's a valuable. But, you know, we're not here to talk about Davon Reed, who's played like 100-something minutes for them and has been on the team for for two weeks. But that just sort of exemplifies – what's gone on with them this year. Like Dozier became a much more important player for them. And then all of a sudden he's out. Then Marcus Howard is playing for them. And then all of a sudden he's out. It's like, you know, you're talking about your second and third best players. Most likely one of your better bench players in Dozier, who was a guy who played a lot last year. And then like the, the greens in the front court together off the bench hasn't worked out. I think as many people expected, Jamichael is sort of not shot very well this year, but the overextending guys, I think, is the big thing that is super noticeable.
1: This is the thing about that I don't think from the outside too many people are, are recognizing or have noticed with the nuggets. Last year, Tim Conley got added Isaiah Hartenstein to be the backup center. Mm-hmm. And Denver got off to a one and four start. Like they had a really bad start. Michael Porter goes gets COVID and then has to quarantine for ten days. And I think Michael Malone hit the panic button and was like, we're playing only veterans. So Hartenstein was on the shelf. I actually really like Hartenstein. I think Me he's too. Like, I think he's like a top 30, 35 center in the NBA. So if he's only asked to play 10, 15 minutes, it's like, yeah, that's perfect. He's more than capable of doing that. But he never played. He just he couldn't get off the bench here in Denver. So they traded him and attached some assets to bring in Jamil McGee, who also didn't play. So Denver kind of, and I think Michael Malone in particular, You know, going into the offseason, my hunch is Tim Conley and company looked around and said, hey, we just wasted a bunch of assets on two very good backup centers. You could argue two of the best backup centers in the entire NBA, and they didn't play. So let's just run it this year without one, uh, since that's Michael Malone's preference. And now you get to this season, and to me, that's maybe the number one thing that second unit is missing is, one, obviously rim protection. Because if you're going to be bad on offense, you might as well make it hard for other teams to score. So rebounding and rim protection. But then, two... Just a guy that can put pressure on the rim in the pick and roll because Zeke Nagy, mm-hmm. uh Jamichael Green, those guys, they don't really like – they're not above the rim lob threats. So I think, I think it's this ripple effect over the last
0: two seasons that has sort of
1: led to Denver being in this spot.
0: All three of the guys that they can conceivably play at backup center are guys that pop way more than they yep. roll when they set screens. I would say Jeff Green exclusively pops. I can't remember – the last time he rolled to the rim it may not have ever happened in his entire life
1: what's interesting is last year in brooklyn they actually did it a lot because he's he's the he might be the most athletic 34 year old in the nba i can't believe 35 i can't believe how athletic he is but nonetheless that's more of a novelty roll to the rim than like uh let's do this every single time have you lob you know go for the lob it's more of a once-off here or there but nonetheless your point stands i will say the nuggets have um started rolling their guys even though they're not lob threats, they're starting just to like make them fake it at least. And it's actually better than having them pick and pop. In large part because as you mentioned, I think Jamichael Green's shooting like twenty-five percent from three this season. So um even a fake lob threat is better than a, a bad
0: pick and pop threat. Yeah, it's uh it's not great with the shooting. Like at least Jeff Green is shoot like shooting reasonably well. It's not ideal. He shot whatever it was, like forty whatever percent with the Nets last year. I think he's in like the lower mid thirties or something like that this season, but or did he shoot fifty percent from three last year? No, forty-one percent from three last year, which was like by far a career high with the Nets. And I you know, I think the issue is for him, he doesn't spend most of his time on the court with Jokic. He spends most of his time on the court probably or no, I guess he's been starting. Jeff recently, Green has right? actually
1: Yeah, Jeff Green has actually been the starter now basically since uh, Michael Porter went out. So Yeah.
0: He's so he's, he's probably more of a play.
1: starter guy than a bench guy at this
0: point. Yeah, but it's like if he, if he is playing with some of the bench unit, there's nobody to get him easy shots. And when he's playing with the starters, he's not the guy that's going to be running most of like the, the dribble handoff and the duck-in stuff with Jokic. That's going to be Barton or Gordon or Morris for the most part. He's going to be sort of an ancillary guy. So the ways that he was getting his looks last year in Brooklyn are not necessarily available to him this season, even though Jokic obviously gets everybody the easiest looks of their life more often than not. Yeah. Yeah, man. That,
1: I don't know. Like Again, I, I go back and forth. Like It's easy. Early on in the season, it was frustrating because Denver was the outlier in this. But now you look around the league, man. I mean, the Nuggets just played the Warriors and the Warriors were equally as shorthanded yeah, as yeah. the Nuggets. Um, If you want to argue about which team was more shorthanded, like you're splitting hairs at that point. At some point, it just doesn't matter. And now you look around the league and almost every team is going through that. So it's weird. I don't know how I don't know if there is a way out of it. Like, I know a lot of people complain and say this or that. I look around and I'm just like, I don't know what the answer is. We're, we're two years into this. It's every The circumstances seem different now than they were three months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have no idea the way out uh, for, for this right now. Nuggets probably going to lose. If they lose tonight. This game is canceled. They probably will cancel one or two more, especially if anybody else on the roster tests positive. And then you got to make up all those games on the back end when there's no time. I just... There's no good answers in my opinion to all of this. So it's it's just such a bummer.
0: Yeah. It's it's a it's affecting the basketball, obviously. It's most importantly, it's affecting guys like health and you know, potentially lives and careers. And it just it throws everything off, obviously. Yeah. But I don't want to get into the whole, do we have to have a three-man MVP conversation or <laughs> whatever? But I really do think that people don't realize exactly how outrageous a season. That Jokic is having yeah. this year, like 28 points, 15 and a half rebounds, and eight assists per 36 minutes. Yeah. Um, he's only playing like 32 a game this year, which is down from last season. So, but still 14 rebounds a game, 26.7 assists. He is hit, but his defensive rebound rate is up like 50% year yeah. over year. Career-high, 38% defensive rebound rate. Leading the league in defensive rebound rate this year. Career-high usage rate, 33%. Career-high assist rate, 42%. Like, on pace to set the record for PER by, like, multiple points, I believe, still. True shooting is, like, barely down. Highest three-point rate of his career. The only thing he's not doing as well or better than ever is making his free throws. And so he's, like, leaving a point or two a game on the board with a missed free throw. It is outrageous what this guy is doing right now. Yeah, it's it's pretty special,
1: man. And I've watched it every night now for seven years. And you just seen the the slow progression of, of you know his confidence and his dominance and what have you. And I honestly, it slowed a little bit. I think he's starting to get a little tired, which is always the concern. Anytime you have to carry a team for, what are we at now, 30, 30, 34 games for Denver? So 34 games he's basically had to be perfect or else Denver doesn't even have a chance and half the time he's perfect. They don't win anyway.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but just watching how, how good he is. I just honestly can't believe it. I don't, I don't blow up the timeline. Cause there's enough of these Jokic guys that like blow up the timeline with stats and player a or player B and all this different stuff. And I think it just like turns people off to him, but I watch him from a personal standpoint and I, and I just go, I honestly can't picture him being better other than maybe making his threes at a little bit higher. But like if he was a 40, a Dirk-like three-point shooter where you had to run him off the line every time. That's the only thing I could think of. But his passing and decision-making is just about perfect. His low-post scoring is just about perfect. Um, even his defense has been really good. His rebounding is maybe best in the NBA this year. Just so many different aspects of his, his hands, his the way he generates steals, it's just crazy. Um, I honestly watch him some nights, and I'm like, yeah, that was a perfect game.
0: It's it's pretty crazy. Like, I don't want to spoil too much of it because I may still try to reconstitute it elsewhere. But there was a story that I was working on, and part of what I was doing for it was going back and watching. It was either going to be every pass or every assist that he's ever thrown yeah. since uh, he came into the NBA, which, thanks to Second Spectrum, I can actually do because they have – You know, every season that he's been in the league is in their database. And some of the stuff, even super early, is just so outrageous The things like the adventurous nature of what he does with the ball and the risks that he's willing to take. Or I guess they're not even necessarily risks. They seem like risks to someone like me because it's like the passes don't exist until they materialize out of thin air when he throws them. And it's just the degree to which he was willing to do that even early on as a guy who wasn't even really starting early in his career, I think he wasn't really even the starter until what, like midway through his rookie year or something like that. Yeah. And it's just, and to see that he's gotten even better and more adventurous since then without like, you know, his turnover rate has been pretty steady. His whole career It dipped a little bit last year and it it's high, but not even close to as high as you know his assist rate or things like that and it's it's high because he runs the entire offense you know like it's just really absurd what he's able to do there's no player that's ever been like this yeah and his assist rate I think is down in part
1: because there's fewer guys to pass through it's up I mean it's up yeah well he's been getting uh he's been attacking like double and triple I mean one of the if you could say complaints about him like in previous season, not so much last year. I think last year is when this all kind of clicked for him. And then this year's just taking it up a level. But two years ago, you could say like got teams would double him and he would pass it to a guy where you think I'd rather Jokic shot a double team on this post up than kick out to a wide open Torrey Craig or whatever mm-hmm. this year. I think he sort of like is so resigned to that fact that you see him take it up against double, triple, sometimes quadruple teams. And I, this is part of why I think his rebound numbers are up too is because you know he's going, he's going up against these double and triple teams, and he'll throw it up on the rim just to get better rebound position. Like some of these are almost these missed shots could almost be counted as passes to himself off the backboard, um, and he's just gotten really good at it. But he's he's incredible, man. I mean, honestly, I we you're split hairs when you get to like best PR, Is he best, thing? but when you I watch him, I honestly watch him and think I don't think these numbers are fooling. I don't think there's some like gimmick in the numbers that make him stand out at all this. I watch him and I go. He both is dominant individually in his matchup, but also does every single thing in the half court for a team on the offensive end. While if you watch his fourth quarter defense, you know he's been very good in close games. It's like he locks in defensively and actually puts forth effort. I just look at it and I go, I can't. There's players as good and as good in different ways, but he dominates as much as I think any individual can outside of just you know never missing shots or whatever.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it would be pretty cool if he never missed shots. <laughs> right. No, I mean, and yeah, the, the usage, or not the usage, but the being, not necessarily willing to pass to guys that shouldn't be getting the ball, but that shows up in like his usage numbers from a couple, of, and his assist rate from a couple of years ago too. Like, right. those had been going up every year of his career. And then two years ago in 1920, the, the year of the bubble, both of those dipped like a very slight amount. And then they both shot up each of the last, two years. So even that sort of thing that like people criticized him. I think the the criticism you could have levied was like he should be even more assertive as an offensive player. Right. And he's done that and he right. still maintains what he's done as like a I don't want to say facilitator because that do, that's not like adequate for for the role that he plays within the offense, like a conductor or an orchestrator or whatever it is. Like it's not like he's out there being selfish.
1: Yeah. Oh, for sure. For for sure, man. And I'm so curious. That's one of the big mysteries for me. We probably won't know the answer to this till next year. But Jokic has gained aggressiveness and that assertiveness and that like just I, I think he's more comfortable trying to dominate an individual matchup. And I'm curious to see what happens when Murray and Michael Porter come back when he doesn't necessarily need to be that aggressive. Mm-hmm. But but can he find the proper balance and is the proper balance just him being aggressive? I mean, this is one of my main questions about the game of basketball in general. I don't know if you need three great offensive players. And Denver has three great offensive players in theory when everybody's healthy. And I just wonder if there is somebody that's going to have to take a giant step back and, and just how that all plays out. Because right now it looks like Jokic is more than capable of being both the best, the team's best facilitator and the best scorer. Jamal Murray secondary at, at both of those things. And that might be it. That might be enough. I, I really don't know.
0: I really just want to see for the first time when Jamal comes back. Jokic like fake a DHO, Murray goes backdoor, and Jokic like slings it one-handed over his head right. over the top of the defense. Like I really just cannot wait to see that for the first time again. Like the the way the two of them work in concert with each other, that's like part of what makes him such a dominant player, is that he is able to amplify his teammates' dominance. You know, specifically right. both Murray yeah. and Porter. Those guys have such unique skill sets and they mesh so well with what Jokic does because he's just able to make anything happen on the court. It's just, and it sucks that that neither of those guys is out there for him right now. Like I, I really like Will Barton as a player, but it's not the same as when he's doing that with Murray. There's a little bit less in terms of being able to hit any shot off the dribble. And there's a little bit less, in terms of the threat of the jumper from the outside, like he's a good shooter. He's not a great shooter, you know, it's just like a little bit different.
1: Yeah, for sure. There's no doubt about it. I am curious to see what this year holds though. I mean, the Michael Porter piece is obviously, uh, you know, on the shelf until next year, but the Jamal Murray return, it's coming at such a perfect time where I think you could squint and say, okay, Five weeks. If he comes back March first, that gives him five, six weeks to to play before the playoffs. I think my my gut tells me that's no, that's not enough to really um, be ready for a playoff push. Uh, hmm. But it's close enough that I think Nuggets fans can stay engaged all year and say, "Hey, it's worth it's worth watching. Let's see what happens." And then you add in the extra layer to like we were talking about with the season earlier, where. Every week in the NBA, something drastic changes to some team, some contender. So you just never know if we're going to get to April, and this is one of those that's wide open, even the top teams look banged up or just look uh, out of sorts because the season's been so fragmented so for me i watch this nuggets team and i'm like it's just they're in purgatory there's they're not moving forward or backwards right now they're just kind of like there and if you i i still have this small tiny hope that hey we get to april and then it's just every team has to like improvise and denver's pretty good at improvising
0: we were we were talking about this i think last week or the week before with murray and sort of the timeline of when he's going to come back because the um the 538 odds still have them as I think the sixth or seventh best chance right to win the title. And some of that is because, because it assumes the the model assumes that Murray will be back on March 1st, which I I tried to talk them out of at the start of the season or when the model was coming out. And I was writing about the, the preview because he tore his ACL in April and 11 months is like a, a generally kind of aggressive timeline, but you had been talking about how, you know, he's going to try to beat that. And then there was this report. I can't remember when it was a couple weeks ago, maybe that he was trying to return in February. Right. But uh, did you see this Michael Malone interview with, with Sam today? What I, I want to go through what he said about Jamal, because it kind of gave me pause on the idea that he might come back this season. Whereas I was getting a little bit more, optimistic um he had said that he he spoke to murray and he said this is me reading the quote that malone said that he said whatever he goes at the same time i tell him listen if it's in the cards for you to come back and play this year great if it's not in the cards for you to come back and play this year great. He's going to come back when he's ready. And as I mentioned, it doesn't just mean from a physical standpoint, hey, the doctors have cleared Jamal Murray. That's only one part of it. The other huge part of it is the mental and the confidence, and he's embracing that. There's zero pressure from me, from Tim Connolly, from anyone on our team or training staff. Jamal will come back when he's ready. So I, I kind of don't know what to think at this point now about the return timeline for him. Do you think it's still like a February, March kind of thing? Or do you think there's a chance that it's possible we just don't see him at all? So in that Michael Malone quote, he actually pretty much ruled out January,
1: February. He said something to the extent of, I don't want Nuggets fans thinking he's coming back in January or February. Mm -hmm. So while he didn't rule him out, it, it certainly it was like strong, you know, like a, a strong comment that they're going to slow play this And the physical slash mental part of it, I think is so key because young player major knee injury, I, from everything I've talked to with like, uh, you know, people that are in sports medicine, he's probably clear now in terms of the ligament damage. Like right now he's probably the ligament is as strong as it's going to get. It becomes a, let's build up the muscles around those because you haven't been able to train at full speed and timing and conditioning all these things that lower your risk of re-injury even outside of the ligaments just general like torque you put on your body and so i think he's at that portion now where it's like okay let's build up his, his 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 leg muscles and then after that part is the whole now you have to go out there and play mentally and how do you mentally after you go through i mean have you ever had a major like knee injury or, or anything like this
0: oh yeah i tore my knee twice i tore my hip uh, i have separated my shoulder dislocated my elbow like, so you know how it is.
1: Like, it's yeah. so psychological when you're like – when you go through an injury like that and it hurts to put pressure on your leg for four weeks and then it hurts to – like you can't run, all this stuff. And then once that's gone, the psychological effect of like you still remembering that sensation or whatever is just there for so long. And I think for Murray, that that's probably the phase he's in right now is building up the muscle and – mentally trying to get used to cutting and jumping and running full speed and all those things. So long story short, I I still have hope that he is back um, early in March, maybe even the first week of March, Um, just because that seems to fit a natural timeline and and some of the stuff I had heard that would would mesh with sort of projections. But the team is definitely playing it way more conservative in what they're saying right now.
0: I think especially for a player like him who so much of what makes him – good is his ability to move around the perimeter without the ball, strengthening those muscles around the knee so that he can cut and change direction and go full speed and change speeds all, you know, in a row or at the same time or at different times, like is so like, this is the most important part of the rehab. Now is being able to get back to doing the things that make him good at like being a basketball player, you know, like, and, and then, from that point, you get into can he drive and take contact? Is he willing to jump up, come down on one leg? Does he like is he does he have right. to land differently because he's still not confident in what that leg does? And I know for me I went like so the first time I tore my knee, it took me longer to get back from the injury than the second time because I was like I was trying to make sure I was perfectly healthy before I was willing to do what i had done before and i think that that negatively affected me like because i was trying to do things in a different way than i had done them before and that i think led to the the second time that i tore my knee or at least contributed to it i don't know if that's true but in my mind that was kind of what i thought but the mental part of it is like the if not the biggest part it's just as big as the physical like obviously you don't want to actually have the injury again but the mental hurdle of every time i land or every time i cut this is what's going to happen to me is is really big and it takes a while and it's not just when you make the same exact motion like the first time i tore my knee it was landing but trying to plant your leg and cut back in that direction it's right. something that can still be, you know, arduous is not the right word, and scary is not the right word, but well, whatever word I'm thinking of. Here's the here's the tough part about this
1: sort of, like, you know, Denver to win an, a cha- an NBA championship is going to take a miracle to begin with. I've just always said this. I mean, they have a great team, but it's just, you know, they're at disadvantages it's just in terms of roster construction that, you know, the, the usual suspects are not at that disadvantage. And I look at the bubble year, I look at last year, and I look at this year, and I go, these are probably the three most wide open years I've seen. Um I know there was the Toronto year, but that wasn't a wide open year until Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson went down. Like it was but prior to that, it was anything but a wide open year. This mm-hmm. year right you now we're already looking at it right now and I'm going, I think Phoenix is a really good team, but they're not infallible. I look at the Warriors and I go, they're a really good team, but they don't really have their weaknesses inside, Denver's strengths inside, like that's interesting, whatever. You know, who knows what happens with Brooklyn. And so I wonder how much Denver gets into the scenario where they're looking at, and if Jamal Murray is healthy, if they're like, yeah, but we just, if we push right now, you know, nobody out West is really that scary. And the path might be the easiest right now that it will be over the next two, three seasons. And and is that worth sort of taking that that type of risk? I don't think Denver will, will push that way, but I think logically it'd be very easy to make an argument that next year's race for the championship will be significantly harder
0: than this year's. And, and that, that'll at least be tempting. Yeah. I mean, like you could make the argument that like last year and this year, were going to be like the best time for them, you know, like, and that's, you never know when the window is going to close super quickly. Like, and I don't even think with them it's closed. It's just
1: that it looked like you were going to get an A plus shot at it. And instead you're just like, no, no, you're going to get a B plus shot at it. And maybe it circles back next year. I mean, look, I think next year they're going to be a really good team. They're, they're one of these teams that will be a lot better. It's just that this year there's so many teams that are down bad that, you know, there's, there, I, there's going to be some team that gets a playoff draw this year that you go like, oh, wow, that's not at that tough of a path to the Western Conference Finals. And maybe it's Denver. Maybe it's somebody else. But it, it's tough when you have this Murray equation. It's tough to not want to be aggressive if there is a path that is like, you know, a banged up, contender at the one seed and all of a sudden you're like hey we can get them in round two that's that that actually looks really favorable now
0: yeah i mean like i wrote about the suns midway through last season and about how they had the resume of a title contender but nobody was really treating them as one and part of what i cited was the the story back in the day that that zach lowe wrote at grantland where he talked to daryl Morey, and it was like any team that has at least a five percent chance to win the title
1: should be going
0: absolutely all in and my theory was the Suns are in that five percent group. They have they're within, you know, one sprained angle or whatever from right. being, you know, the, the team that wins the title. And that is basically exactly what yep. happened to them last year. And I think you can make the argument that as long as you have Jokic on your team, you're in that five percent group. Like even in the diminished state that they've been right. for most of this season and with the record that they are, the five thirty-eight odds still give them a four percent chance right. right now. Yep. And that's like if you're in that situation with a player that good, that is, you know, in his prime years, he's 26 years old right now. Like, I think that you have to be of the mind that you can compete to win this year, and I think that they are, are probably are of that mind. It obviously gets much easier for them to do that if they can get Murray back on the court. And I don't think that they would necessarily have a very good chance if he wasn't back on the court. And they should get better next year, but. And I didn't mean to imply earlier that their window is now closed, but the idea is you right, want to have sure. your window open either very wide or for a very long time, or ideally both, and for them to lose like at least one year based on last season and potentially this year as well, if they can't get Murray back or if you know they keep sort of having got other guys with injury issues like to lose a year or maybe two. A, a window that seemed like it was open wide and could be open for a long time. It just, it sucks, you know, like you never know. I honestly,
1: the more this goes on, the less I, I, cause that used to be the question, right? Would you rather have your title wi- window open for a long time or just wide open, but for a short time, I honestly think it's the second, it's the wide open because in the NBA, this is less true than what it was 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, but it's so hard to see three years in the future. And mm-hmm. so trying to come up with this game plan of, okay, we're set up for the next five years. You're never set up for the next five years. You just can't... The NBA's yeah. too chaotic now for you to be able to make long-term plans. Just just go for it. And, Look at and, the Celtics.
0: We, right, like totally. three years ago, we thought, oh my God, the Celtics are going to be competing can't for, forever. Their is going to be open for so long. Now it's like every day I see 17 tweets about should the Celtics break up. I Their window, <laughs> I think, is over. Maybe I'm just being the hot take guy and
1: people in Boston say the same thing about Denver. I don't know, but I... I honestly look at them and I go, I don't know what their path is to contention outside of like really getting lucky on something you didn't expect. Um, but this does bring me back to Denver a little bit in that okay, let's just, this year is chaos. I don't want to say one that Denver has a chance or doesn't have it. Who knows? But you go into this off season now and you've got Jamal Murray back. You've got Jokic, who's probably going to be as age twenty eight season next year, twenty seven season. He, you would expect this to be about his the peak of his prime, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I, and I do wonder if you look around, it, Tim Conley, I think, has probably been the best in the draft, best at talent evaluator over the last seven seasons. I mean, Denver has more second-round picks that are playing real minutes or even starting in the NBA right now than most teams have, have like, lottery picks uh, over that period. <laughs> so, uh, like, dead serious, honestly, if you go through, like, Jared Vanderbilt is... The fourth best second round pick Tim Conley has over the last five years, and he's starting for the Timberwolves. But it, so, but here's the thing: Denver probably doesn't have use for first-round picks anymore. I, I honestly think that. Like you've got Zeke Nagy and Bones Highland, two really good players, but they're such a small impact on this season. And going forward, increasingly so, what do you need a, a two, three-year project? That I wonder if then this is the all-in moment for Denver where they've already traded enough picks, but I wonder if it's just if, if 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 you stop looking at what did the Nuggets look like in 2025 and just start throwing caution to the wind and say, hey, let's just see what happens now.
0: I think they, they traded their 2025 pick, if I'm remembering correctly, in the, the Aaron Gordon deal. They, they
1: did the thing that's kind of actually, it's funny how this hamstrings you, but they did the whole like where it rolls over, you know, protected here or there. And it makes it a little bit harder for you to trade picks. Um, unless you remove those protections. So Denver, that's one thing they're up against. But I even look at, like, I love Bones Highland. I love that guy. He's so interesting. I think he's going to turn out to be a great player. But even I look at him and go, is it—is he more valuable to Denver as this guy that's going to be, like, a rookie this year, like, going to be pretty solid, but question mark in a playoffs next year, and then two years from now it's like, okay, he's reliable. Or is he more valuable now where you say, hey, include him and a draft pick and just get a, like, sixth best player on your team? That's negative value when you look over the spectrum of five years, but it might be plus valuable for one year. And maybe that's where Denver's at right now where it's like, hey, you can't look past one or two years
0: right now because that's the, this is your best chance. It's such an interesting question too because they, they still don't have their second and third best players on the court right, right now. Right, yeah. So it was like, is that worth it? Is it not worth it? Like, is Do you need someone like Highland on your team because Murray is – 90% of what he was as opposed to 100%. Like, how do you balance that? Like, is, is Najee a center? And does that mean he's limited to, at most, like, 14, 15 minutes a game? And how much right. value does that really have for you? Like, there are so many different considerations. And then you go into, right. like, the guys that they have surrounding Jokic right now. Like, Will Barton is in his early 30s. Um, Murray, obviously, is still young. Porter is still young. Aaron Gordon is way younger than I thought. Seems like he's been in the league for thirty-seven years. He's yeah, what is he? Twenty-six old. Yeah. Yeah. By
1: the
0: By the way, what's your perspective on him? I'm
1: so curious what people are thinking about Aaron Gordon, both as a player, but also as like the season he's having.
0: I think he's had a strange season because. They got him to play a specific role, and for two weeks last year, he played that specific role, and he was fucking awesome at it. It was (laughs) incredible. It was like everything that we envisioned him becoming on this team was exactly what was happening. And then Murray goes down, and he has to play a slightly different role. And now Porter is down, too, and all of a sudden he's back to playing not necessarily the role that he played in Orlando, but something close to it. And that's just not the, the reason that they got him. It's not what they wanted him to do. I think he's still done fairly well with it, and he's been more accepting of a, you know, I'm going to be behind, like, Will Barton in the pecking order still, too. Um, and he's done well with that. I really, really like him, and I think that the idealized version of him where all their guys are healthy, and he's basically, like, their fifth starter and just defends his ass off and, like, makes plays cutting off of Jokic or makes plays, and he can play on the second unit with Murray or or with Porter. Like, I think him and Porter fit so well together as a front court pairing. Like I absolutely love everything about the reasons they got him and how he fits in with what they want him to be doing. And that's just not what he needs to do right now, basically.
1: Yeah. I think my favorite comp for him right now, and this is the a version of whatever mold Aaron Gordon is. I think the a version is Andre Iguodala and that Iggy is like an incredible player. I mean, he's like, like an all timer, but when he was the guy, you know it's like it was a little underwhelming he could do so much of a jack of all trades could do a little bit of everything but you're always like yeah but he's not a number 1 or whatever and it almost makes people discount him i think Aaron Gordon is a winner like he's really smart fits in his role really well and doesn't necessarily step outside those lines knows how to take he uses he has incredible physical gifts not just obviously his jumping but he's so strong and tall and mobile for his height i mean he's kind of what is he basically lebron's like height and he's just so mobile like he could just move so well even on defense. So I think he's one of these guys that is way to call him a role player. Sounds like an insult, but he's like an elite one. And I, I I didn't think this of him, you know, before Denver got him, I was a little bit skeptical. I thought he was maybe a good stats, bad team type personality or this or that, but I've just been so impressed with not just what he's done, but what he's like wanted to do since getting here, maybe being paid as much money as Denver paid him helped alleviate some of the pressure of trying to be a scorer or what have you. But He's just been so willing to play that like low usage Iguadala type role. and i I really think he is a championship caliber role player
0: and I think by the way, that the contract that they have him on is really good value. like yeah he got, he obviously got paid like a lot of money, but the ho- the most amount of money he's gonna make at any time in the next five years is twenty two point eight million dollars right, right. That's gonna be like a sixth of the salary cap by then, maybe. Right. You know, like, that's a really good value deal for a guy who's a good starter, you know? I, yeah, just... I, I like him a lot more. I know this is going to sound a bit
1: sour grapes coming from a Denver, you know, media personality, but I, I actually really like him more than Jeremy Grant. And it's funny, not as in like a value proposition, because I don't know, like Jeremy Grant's clearly a better like one-on-one scorer mm-hmm. and three-point shooter, but the fact that Aaron Gordon has been so, like, understanding of, one, whose team this is. It's Jokic's team. You know, it was Murray's team after that. It's Michael Porter's team. Like, just so that was never an issue for him. And the way he defends, the way he just sort of commits to the role that they have him in is, it's so impressive. I I think it's one of the more underrated aspects of the NBA is when you have a guy capable of being good enough to be the number two guy on, like, a six seed, but instead he commits to being the number four guy on a one or two seed— it's really—I don't think people understand how hard that is as a basketball player. But he—he he seems not
0: just like willing to do it, but almost like eager to do that. Well, I think it's super interesting. Like you bring up Jeremy Grant. Like look at the compare and contrast the way those two guys' careers played out. Gordon obviously was—you know—a a high draft pick. Grant was a second-round pick. Right. He Floats around on some bad teams and finally winds up on a good team. And he is very clearly a complementary player. Gordon is a guy who's a high draft pick on a bad team, becomes sort of the top or second top guy on still a bad team. And it's like, Grant is like, I want to spread my wings. I want to see what more I can do than what I've done so far. And Gordon is like, I have tried being this guy and it kind of sucks. sucks. Like our team is really bad. If I could just go to be on this team and just do what it takes to win, that would be kind of awesome. And like he's making the same amount of money anyway. And I think he's more highly thought of in Denver than he was in Orlando because he's shown that he can do exactly what you're saying. And that is super valuable. The craziest one to me that makes me really think what you're saying
1: is like spot on is early. Like you said, there was like seven games where the Nuggets played with their full roster last year before Murray got hurt. But in one of those games, they played a fully healthy Clippers team with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George both playing. Oh my and God, sm- they smoked them. They smacked the shit out of them. It was oh like, it, it, it was a sunning. And, uh, and Aaron Gordon defended really well. And I remember after that game, it was like TNT. They interviewed Aaron Gordon, uh, you know, on the court after the game on TNT, like Chuck, Chuck and Shaq. And I remember thinking to myself, I wonder how many times Aaron Gordon has had a, like a post-game national interview when he was in Orlando. Like they just didn't have that many games that won. They were on national television. And if they did, there weren't that many that they won. And I'm thinking he's been here for four days and he's getting to talk, you know, he's like in the spotlight, like that. The, the contrast is so stark that I think you are right that there is the, are you paid like a superstar and do you get to shoot all the time? That's one aspect of the fun of it. But another aspect is if you're the leading scorer on a team, but you never get to be on TV or interviewed or like any of this, like it probably like loses its luster after a year or two.
0: Yeah. I mean, how many times have the magic been on TNT in the last Aaron Gordon's been in the league for what, six, seven years? Like, yeah. Not much. They were probably the eight seed for the first three or four years of his career. No, once. Then, just once. They made, really? he had, they only made yeah,
1: once? Yeah, he had four playoff games under his belt. They got swept by the Raptors. I thought they were an eight seed or no, twice. Or maybe he didn't play in one of those. Maybe he was injured yeah, an injury out, maybe. That's possible. Was he out in the bubble? I'm pretty sure he had four playoff games
0: uh they when, were I, when I looked eight it up. Seed in, uh, in 2020 and the seven seed in 2019, so maybe he was. Out. I think
1: the 2019 is the year because he guarded Kawhi Leonard, and that was the year the Raptors won,
0: uh, won the title. Um, was he not in the bubble? Yep, he was not in the bubble. Is what? There happened. you go when they lost to Milwaukee. Not to mention, even
1: if he was in the bubble, like you're talking about a a token eight seed with no fans. Like it's just, it's still the same situation. Nobody's talking to him or watching or or anything like this. So it's just an interesting thing. Like Denver's by no means the big market. Um, And I wonder how his perspective has changed since Denver's been off the radar. Like they're not getting a lot of interviews for anybody anyway, right now anyway. But I, I do wonder if, he sort of senses that, like, hey, once everybody's back, we go back to being one of the, like, five teams that matter and and you really miss that when you don't have it.
0: That brings up, actually, another part of the Malone interview that I thought was interesting, where uh, where Sam asked him about, um, like, the way that the, the Jokic MVP presentation was handled and, like, <laughs> why can't he capture the spotlight? And Malone says... Um, I have various thoughts on that one. One were the Denver Nuggets. There's nothing sexy about the Denver Nuggets. We're in Denver, Colorado, a fairly small market team, a team that's never won a championship. So it's not like we're a marquee team. I think the second part of it is that Nicole is not a sexy player. He's not a guy that you turn on SportsCenter every night. It's going to be filling up the top ten plays with athletic highlight types of plays, which is what people are drawn to. You have to be a basketball fan, a true basketball fan, to appreciate Nicola's greatness, his ability to make every one of his teammates a better player, his passing IQ, his skill level, and the way he does it—that is not going to wow you. And then, you, until you look at the stat sheet, and then you look at, oh wow, Michael Malone. You're wrong. I said, thank you, a sexy player. I, you I thank you.
1: <laughs> I was—I read that one too, and I was—I was sitting here and I was like, oh man, I'm going to have to like get angry here. But I'm with you. Like I—I I understand Malone. He's diplomatic. And by the way, him and Sam Amick go way back to the Sacramento days with Michael yeah. Malone and uh, Sam Amick's on the. Uh, The Sacramento Beat in those days. So, those are like buddies, and I'm sure he's talking to him as a friend and maybe even casually. But uh, this is my biggest complaint about the NBA. The product of when he says you have to be a diehard basketball fan, isn't that the goal of the NBA to create diehard basketball fans? But to his point, to Michael Malone's point, the NBA has marketed a very specific thing over the last 30 years, really, but it's like increased in the social media age where. Everything just seems to progress exponentially towards uh, whatever direction things are moving. But you're right. The NBA markets, first of all, they market like, those types of highlight play, like a donk. Okay, we're going to get that. But more than anything, they market people. They just market like, these, these storylines that, that are controversial and create engagement. And Jokic is not a controversial figure. In terms of like, oh, how can we package this? Like, what did Jokic just post on his Instagram? Like, a la Joel Embiid. Like, Joel Embiid's talking trash to so and so today. Like, this is going to lead Sports Center. We're going to tweet about it twenty times. Like, Jokic doesn't do that. But the whole idea of like, you have to be a basketball fan to appreciate him. To me, that's the that's the killer line there because the NBA is a basketball league, but basketball just seems so secondary to all this, and it's it, it's why they have sort of created. The, the, the league has become a snake eating its own tail in this
0: way. Well, I also think like he's absolutely a guy who you're going to see on SportsCenter top tens and whatnot. Look at the passes this guy throws. Right, like right. you got like people freeze framing passes on Twitter and stuff. Like right. he threw this ball in front thro- in front of one guy's face, behind another guy's right, head, right. directly to Michael Porter in the corner. This was when Porter was still playing early in the season. I can't. Re- I think he made the shot. He was like No, he missed it. It oh, caught right. him off guard. He like like double-like hit him in the chest. Yeah, he didn't realize the pass was absolutely outrageous. And this is the kind of stuff that I'm like watching these passes earlier in the season, I'm like, I'm like falling all over myself to be like, this is absolutely out of control. But like, I don't know, for maybe I'm just one of the people that Malone is talking about. For me, like that that kind of it rung untrue to me because he abs like what's more sexy than like a super slick pass, no look, one handed pass that catches like nine guys on the court off guard you know yeah for
1: whatever reason it's just not it's just not loud enough I guess because th- there's got to be a reason the NBA decides to market this league the way that they do Zach Lowe I was listening to Zach Lowe and Jeff Van Gundy earlier today and it was pretty funny hearing them talk about why do the Lakers matter why are they a headline this or that it is a, just like this Lakers season really is showing you how they're too big to fail right like the NBA can't have the Lakers be bad because that's bad for business and they're bad right now and and so that's why you get these weird like Lakers lose by 25 and you tweet out LeBron James was the first player to do that you're like what what does this matter they lost by 30 for the fifth game in a row but that's just uh that's where we are man
0: I mean, they're definitely too big to fail. They were bad for like six years, and then all of a sudden, LeBron goes there just because he wants to go there. Like, right. could you imagine if that ever happened? Something like that ever happened to the Knicks? It never happened in my entire life.
1: Man, that's 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 sad for the Knicks though, because the Knicks, uh, they should be too big to fail. Man, they should, they should be. They, they they keep
0: fumbling that. Yeah. Well, when your owner is who the Knicks owner is, as opposed to literally anybody yeah. else. Um, you know, thankfully he's sort of staying out of the way, but even the Knicks don't look too good right now. I want to get to one more thing before I let you go on uh, Michael Malone, which is some of there's like a portion of Nuggets Twitter that's like extremely anti Michael Malone. And it's always because like he's not playing the one guy they've decided is the solution to all of life's problems. Right. Basically, can you explain these people to me? Because I don't get it. So I'm so curious you say that because my experience is that every
1: fan base is the exact same, just some are bigger than others. Um, so I'm surprised that you feel that is a Denver stereotype. I, I definitely see it. You're not wrong. Like there's always – every season has the guy. And it's like, hey, that it's either that guy's fault or that's the guy that can save everything. Mm-hmm. And this year there's definitely a lot of that, even though you look at it and it's like, are we sure Dave Von Reed is the guy that's going to save the entire like, – the Nuggets are going to be title contenders as long as he plays more minutes? I don't – you know, like I don't know. Um, so I would say that's more of just a how people consume the NBA. Everybody wants to make that one tweak that opens up the the most ideal version of the team. This year for Denver, though, man, it's just I don't I don't see that move. I don't see that one. There's things I get annoyed about or little decisions, but they're they're the types of things that make the difference between one out of every ten games maybe goes different. Not not
0: the thing that makes the team drastically different than who they are. Maybe it is something that's just for. For every team like I know like as a Nick fan and my Nick fan friends are all complaining like why don't they play quickly and grimes more Um, which you know I don't think it's gonna change anybody's life I do think they should play more because like the team's not very good and the guys that are playing in front of them are not playing well and it seems like they can at least shoot the ball so that would be nice for a change but like you know just same way I don't think that giving bones 20 minutes a night every night is gonna suddenly make the Nuggets a title contender but you know could stand to to play a little bit more. So maybe it is something that is just every team, and I just notice it because I think Malone is a really good coach, and people complaining about him sort of rubs me the wrong way because it's like, you you want to see a bad coach? I'll show you.
1: <laughs> For sure. You know? like I think uh, my, my evaluation of Michael Malone, you know, every coach has, like, pluses and minuses. I think Michael Malone might be the best in the NBA or at least top five in the NBA in terms of, like, just raw leadership keeping the team together nobody's fighting um you lose a couple games in a row Let's all rally you know nobody's there's no fractures I think he's really really good at this just connecting with players and leading them in that way and then the other thing he's really great at is I think he's a very good like he prepares well and I've heard this from like PR members and and other people that he, he he routinely will not let people know whether they're having practice till three or four in the morning so guys are like have their phones on when they go to bed and set alarms for the middle of the night so they could check to see if they need to wake up or not. And because of that, it's because he's always like just prepared. He's like a a crazy person when it comes to making sure he has all angles covered. So I think he's great at that. I don't know if he's the most creative coach. And there's coaches that are great at that and worse at other things. And to me, that's the one thing I would look at is he's a little stubborn, he's a little old school, and he's not always the most creative. But like I said, every coach has – it's like a NBA Jam. You know, you have the little sliders. You're good at steals, but you're not good at passing or whatever. <laughs> every every coach has, like, their things they're great at, things they're not great at. And I think when you add it all up together, he's probably one of the 10 or 12 best coaches in the NBA.
0: There's a lot worse coaches out there. For sure. Um, I know from a whole lot of experience, you know, like, trust me, you could do plenty worse and – uh <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's funny because even like if you look at, this is a, a crazy example, but if you look at Brad Stevens, who like five years ago was the X's and O's genius, the creative new blood, whatever, that was the best at this. And he's still a great co His His leaving is more just about like how that arc sort of came full circle to where after five years, maybe you started to notice the ways maybe he wasn't connecting fully with players the way a Doc Rivers would. Now would you say Doc Rivers is a better coach? No, but there's certain skills that Doc Rivers is elite at and certain skills he is horrendous at, and all coaches are sort of that way. Coaching is so hard. Like there's the more I'm around the league and just following this, I honestly think most of it is leadership. And the basketball, like, theory aspect of it is the part that gets – it's really important, but it gets overrated the most, especially in a regular season.
0: Yeah, I, the the tactical aspect of coaching is absolutely way more important in, in, in a playoff series. In the playoffs, yep. In terms of, like, your ability to exploit strengths and weaknesses yep. of the other team, your overall system matters more than that in the regular season, I think, because right. you need to be pursuing the right kind of shots – in the right ways or right. in whatever is the right way for your roster and forcing the opposing team into bad shots or taking the ball away from them or both ideally. Totally. So, but it's, there's obviously like the significant majority of the job is done behind closed doors in ways that we can't see a thousand percent.
1: And over t- the course of time, just every locker room, no matter how close they are, they start to fracture at some point for something and, the coaches that don't let those little fractures become big ones, um, it's so much harder than I think people realize. By the way, that's why I think Ty Lu is the number one coach in the NBA because he is probably a top five X's and O's coach, in my opinion, and he's probably a top five, like, everybody seems to, to like, he knows how to handle stars and, and personalities and all of this different stuff. So, to me, it's the best combination of both. But
0: even he has his flaws. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like Ty and both of those respects but the one thing that always grabs me is like he'll start a playoff series with a lineup that is kind of yeah not right, right for that series and then he'll make a change and yeah. it'll work and then the next series he will go right back to what wasn't <laughs> working and like need it to not work again he, he literally he did it last year when they They started off big against the Mavericks. Right, yeah. It wasn't working. He brings in Terrence Mann. He's like their most important player in the series. Completely changes the series for them when they go small. And then he benches Terrence Mann for game one of the series against the Jazz. They lose. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Can Can I tell you, though, Michael Malone does
1: this stuff too. Not necessarily just in playoff series, but just there'll be times when he's playing a certain guy in a rotation to start a year for like 15, 20 games. And you'd be like, what are you doing? Like, clearly not working. And I think the fact that so many coaches do this, it really tells you how volatile a locker room is. That even Mm. in a playoff series, sometimes you have to allow a team to see clearly that their preferred lineup or p- way of playing doesn't work before you change it. Because if you change it, even if you're right and you change it, you it just seems like NBA players then lose trust or something in them. So, oh, that, so it's a legitimate complaint, but it seems that there's probably a reason we don't see. Maybe I'm just letting coaches off the hook, but I'm no, guessing no, there's probably I, I a reason we don't see. Right,
0: but I think there's also a difference between like Paul Millsap has been starting at the four for us next to Jokic for four right. years. We're not going to take him out of the starting lineup. And... We went small against the Mavericks because that's the only way we can win right now. We need to get these five guys on the court together. And now we're playing another team where we need to go small, but we're going to go back big again because that's just what we're going to do. Right, right. You know, so it is a little bit different. Like, I absolutely agree with you where, you know, if you have an established thing and this is what works for you and this is what you've done for a long time, you need to prove to yourself that it's not going to work. (laughs) Most <laughs> of the time, there are some coaches where you don't need to do that. Pop will start Manu in Game Three because he wants to start Manu in Game Three. <laughs> well, Pop, you know? is, it, Pop in the Spurs culture
1: is the one that transcends all of this. But I, I the, the the ultimate of this, by the way, was if you remember the Durant Harden uh, era in, in OKC with with Westbrook. Every game, first of every playoff game, every Finals game, first play of the game was Kendrick, Kendrick Perkins, Perkins post up, <laughs> and it's like, hey, are you really going to punt the first possession every time? But Hey man, we don't know what it's like the politics inside of those locker rooms and I don't know. Nobody on the team was this, complaining.
0: I I wrote about Scott Brooks so much during that era of <laughs> basketball and I remember talking to him about it. I can't remember how many years ago, like early in his tenure with the Wizards and him just explaining to me all these different things about like why they did things the way they did with <laughs> Oklahoma City and like the things that I didn't necessarily know about certain things that they were doing and I was just like First of all, I can't believe you fucking read what I wrote. Second of, all, <laughs> second of all, I can't believe you had to put up with that kind of stuff. <laughs> so funny, man. Yeah. But anyway, thank you, man. I really appreciate you coming on and doing this. this I, was I fun. love watching the Nuggets when they're full strength, when they're not full strength. I would watch Jokic play with like you, me, and two guys from the street if totally. that was possible. Um, tell, or, tell the people where they can find you. It's DNBR
1: com yeah, right no the but really the best way of, if you're ever interested you watch a nuggets game and you enjoyed it just go watch our post game show up on youtube we do live post game shows from our bar and studio here in denver after every i game can't game believe you guys have home. a bar it's so cool <laughs> it <laughs> is so cool I, I wish it was literally any other time in human history but um it is pretty cool to have a bar yeah
0: and then you got the the, the podcast you got the dnvr podcast yeah. dnvr nuggets, po- yeah. nuggets podcast um Anything Nuggets, you're going to run into me, pretty much. Covering the Nuggets, for sure. Thank you again for doing this, man. I appreciate you. Thanks so Uh, much, Jared. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, buddy. Take care. Uh, Back next week, guests to be determined at the...